Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselle Damari-Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. I'm sure there's people around the world who are watching these protests and destruction of old Southern or white power structure symbols, and they're just waiting for it to be over so that they can go get a haircut, just waiting to return back to a sense of normal. And that is what this moment is really about. There truly will be no return to normal. So many people weren't feeling normal. There wasn't a normal in the first place. This is our final episode of the season, and we have a really special guest for you. He's someone who I think speaks directly to this moment of of reckoning that we're having with regards to racism and especially Black lives. Yes, we are grateful to end our season with the brilliant Tyler Mitchell. Tyler is a 25-year-old Black American photographer. He's best known for photographing Beyonce for the September cover of American Vogue in 2018. And he's also worked with some of the biggest fashion brands. But really, he's more than a fashion photographer. And it's kind of impossible to give him a label like Mm. that because... um, Really, he's a political artist. And his work is about Black freedom and the ways in which Black freedom has been denied. And his work and the way he speaks about his work is really a valuable lens to see this moment through, especially as the Black Lives Matter movement continues to grow. Before we listen to my conversation with Tyler, Lila, I feel like we should um, take a moment just to think about what's been happening since our last episode and kind of talk it through a bit. I mean, you're in Brooklyn right now in one of the centers of this protest movement. What what have the past couple of weeks been like? You know, Grizz, it's been kind of um, profound to have gone from what has felt like one of the most historic moments of my lifetime, just a, a, a pandemic, to then another one of the most historic moments of my lifetime is like this movement. It feels like mm. the world has completely changed again and and one has created space for another. And um, over these past few weeks, it feels like we're in the start of what could be the next civil rights movement. I, I don't know. I, as you said, I live in Brooklyn and and it's been so much to process. I, I, I've been attending protests. Um, I've never seen police like that, seemingly militarized, you mm. know, in riot gear and holding batons and in a row and sort of they call it kettling people, sort of pushing people mm. um, into different areas and it's scary and it can be quite enraging to see like police brutality in protests against police brutality. Yeah. Um, but then on the other side, I've also never felt New York so full of camaraderie and kindness. Like there's protesters sharing hand sanitizer and free water and hmm. dancing in the streets and cars that have been stuck for, you know, 20 minutes because protesters have taken over um, main thoroughways that are like beeping in solidarity. Wow. Um, Yesterday, I did this bike ride with my sister and brother-in-law and my niece, Athena. And she's four years old, and she was sitting in her little carrier behind my sister. And a guy came up to her with a microphone connected to a speaker on his bike, and she said, no justice. And this huge adult movement responded, taking this little girl's voice, like, seriously. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. And I just felt a little more hopeful for the world that she'll grow up in. Mm. And, you know, the last thing I've been thinking about a lot is um, my brother-in-law, Miles, has been fighting against Black injustice for decades. um, And he's educated a lot of people Mm. over his lifetime. And um, I asked him how it felt seeing so many people joining this movement. So many people, like, enraged after police killed George Floyd. 
so many like white people waking up. And he just said, like, welcome to the party. (laughs) And I've been thinking about that for weeks, Mm -hmm. like, welcome to the party. Um, And uh, I don't know. I just keep thinking like the other part that that I think a lot of white people are sitting with is just like. What took us so long? Mm, Yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing how Tyler has experienced this time and we'll reflect more after the interview. Um, But at this point, we usually give some cultural recommendations and we wanted to give some that were relevant to this. So even though there are more resources than ever on our feeds for where people can go to educate themselves on the history of racism, um, Grizz, I'm curious what has spoken to you. Well, I want to recommend two books, the first of which is why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, it came out a few years ago, and I'm sure lots of people have read it um, and seen it all over social media recently. It actually topped the nonfiction paperback bestseller list um, in the UK just last week. Mm. But if you haven't read it yet, I would really recommend it. Um, it's about race and racism in the UK, which actually is a subject that not as much um, has been written about compared to the US. It's really thoroughly researched. It's really well written. I read it more like a novel than a nonfiction book. Um, And this was a few years ago. And I really found it to be a wake-up call. So, um, yeah, that is my first recommendation. But but the other thing I want to recommend is actually um, a brand new novel. It's called um, The Vanishing Half by the writer Britt Bennett. And it's about a pair of twins growing up in the 1950s in America. Mm -hmm. Um, They're African-American and very light-skinned. And basically, these two women take, as adults, they take very different paths. One of them decides to kind of pass, in inverted commas, as white, and the Mm. other one doesn't. Um, She kind of remains black, as it were. Um, And obviously, they have very different lives because of this. And and interwoven with that is also the story of the kind of next generation and how this decision impacts their lives. So it's... It's really interesting. It's a really interesting book to read now. You know, it's basically about the legacy of of segregation and and racism, but just told through this one family. Mm, wow. Yeah, and I think you know something that I've said before on the podcast is that reading can be quite hard during lockdown. Yeah, it's an anxious time, and getting into a book can be quite difficult. This book has a really compelling plot, and I've said before that books with good plots are, for me anyway, that's been what's been getting me through. Yeah. And yeah, this is really one of those. So so I recommend it. That sounds really good. I I saw that it was number one on bestseller list. Yeah. I mean, it's literally just just came out last week. It couldn't have come out at a better time. The other thing I've been watching is a new TV show by Michaela Cole, who did Chewing Gum. Mm. Um, She's brilliant. She's brilliant. It's called I May Destroy You. And it's a co-production between the BBC and HBO. So I'm watching on iPlayer, but you can watch it in the States. There are only two episodes available so far, but it's the best thing I've seen in a really long time. Really? It looked scary, Grizz. <laughs> I mean, it's scary in a psychological way. It's it's really about mm. consent and kind of subjectivity. Interesting. And and it's also about race, you know, because Michaela Cole is black and a lot of the actors are black and the characters in the show. Um, you know, I'd be recommending it anyway, even if it weren't for all the things that were happening right now. But it does feel mm-hmm. like it adds another layer of interest to this piece of art that I think is really smart and really mm. well observed. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So I'm just desperate for the other episodes to come out so I can binge them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how about you, Lila? I've just been sitting here, Grizz, and thinking a lot about whiteness. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my whiteness. Um, and I know a lot of people are reading Robin D'Angelo's book right now. It's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And um, I just highly recommend it. Like, that's my recommendation. Uh, it's an obvious one, but I just think that all white people or even anyone who hasn't spent substantial time studying race would just get like a huge amount of value out of reading it. Mm. It's made me think about how so much of me has wanted to use something to exempt myself of critical examination of my whiteness, whether mm. that be that I'm Greek and Armenian, that I have black people in my family, you know, yeah. um, 
people use like that they marched in the 60s, that they have black friends. Like there are so many ways in which we feel like we can exempt ourselves. I'm not racist. Um, But like that's really harmful. And I'm learning from this book that like for white people, not analyzing our whiteness contributes to white supremacy. There's a quote that particularly stood out that I'm going to read. Cool. She says in the first chapter, our opinions are uninformed. I've never met a white person without an opinion on racism. White people's opinions on racism tend to be strong, yet race relations are profoundly complex. We must be willing to consider that unless we have devoted intentional and ongoing study, our opinions are necessarily uninformed, even ignorant. How can I say that if you are white, your opinions on racism are most likely ignorant when I don't even know you? I can say so because nothing in mainstream U.S. culture gives us the information we need to have a nuanced understanding of arguably the most complex and enduring social dynamic of the last several hundred years. For example, I can be seen as qualified to lead a major or minor organization in this country with no understanding whatsoever of the perspectives or experiences of people of color, few if any relationships with people of color, and virtually no ability to engage critically with the topic of race. I can get through graduate school without ever discussing racism. I can graduate from law school without ever discussing racism. I can get through a teacher education program without ever discussing racism. Wow. So that's the book. (laughs) It's a book that I've been meaning to read for a while, but hearing that quote, I had never thought about it that way. And that is so true. It's just a useful reminder that this is a field of study, basically, and that um, we shouldn't immediately get defensive or entitled enough to feel that um, we really know what we're talking about right now until we start to educate ourselves. Yeah, and like how arrogant to presume, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. Grizz, Mm. tell me about Tyler Mitchell. Well, he's most famous for photographing Beyonce for the cover of Vogue. Mm-hmm. But as you said at the top, he he's not just a fashion photographer. His most recent project is called I Can Make You Feel Good. Um, it was on a show at the International Center of Photography in New York uh, just before mm. lockdown. And there's also a book that's coming out next month. Um, and this project includes photographs of beautiful young black people, some of whom are his friends and his peers, And they're often in parks and in meadows and just, you know, enjoying being outside, enjoying being with each other. Mm -hmm. And Tyler describes this kind of work as like a black utopia. You just have to look at his photographs to see that he's pushing culture forward, um, which is, of course, the lens we use when we have people on the show, like who's pushing culture forward. Mm. But in your mind, what is Tyler doing specifically that's pushing culture forward? I think one of the interesting things is that he came up through Tumblr um, as a teenager, Mm. you know, as a skateboarding teenager. He's really big on Instagram. He's got something like 300,000 followers. And you could almost say that his photographs have like a sort of Instagram aesthetic, you know, pastel colors, natural daylight, beautiful young people. And that's not at all to delegitimize them. You know, that's actually the point that he's making. He's saying, Mm. in a sense, that we're so used to seeing images like this of young white bodies kind of moving through Mm -hmm. space. Um, And, you know, there's a whole history of art that's basically depicting white people's leisure time. Um, (laughs) That's true. But but by putting black people in these scenarios, he's doing something very, you know, it immediately changes. He's doing something very different and very political. Um, He's making a point about blackness and about freedom and about the limits of freedom, I think. Mm. So... You initially spoke to Tyler at the beginning of May, Mm -hmm. which, of course, was a different time. Lockdown was in full force. We were still scared of going to the supermarket. (laughs) Crucially, it was also before police killed George Floyd, um, before Mm -hmm. the protests had ignited. It was also five days before the video came out of three white men killing Ahmaud Arbery, who was on a jog near his home in Glynn County, Georgia. Yeah. So that conversation in May, um, you know, what Tyler says still feels extremely relevant. But, um, you know, people might have noticed that that this episode is going out a few days later than normal. Um, and that's because we wanted to check in with Tyler. You know, we wanted I wanted to speak to him one more time um, mm. and to see how he's processing everything. So what you'll hear is the initial conversation I had with him and then um, the call that I had with him just now. Um, and I'm really glad that we had this chance to call him back. Also, just before we start, it's just 
still in my head what a privilege this is to be able to talk to an artist whose work focuses around Black bodies like before this movement started and also in the midst of it. It's just, um, we're really grateful for his time. Yeah, we really are. I should say before we listen to the interview that Tyler and I were both recording from our homes, as ever. Um, So you can hear the sound of trains passing by his window in Brooklyn, where he lives. Cool. So yeah, here's our first conversation. This was in early May. Back then, the protests hadn't started. And lockdown and the limitations of being in lockdown were really at the top of people's minds. Tyler, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited, actually. I want to ask you about how you started out as a photographer, but I just wanted to to spend a bit of time first thinking about I Can Make You Feel Good, the, the book that you're about to bring out. Yeah. Before we spoke, I was just going back and looking at those images, um, and I was really struck by them. So these are images of kind of young black men and women hanging out in parks, mm. lovers maybe holding each other, kind of touching each other, just doing normal things mm-hmm. that that young people do in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, of course, we're not hanging out in parks and, and doing those things. And so there's there's a kind of real poignancy to those pictures now. And mm-hmm. I wonder whether, you know, where you to kind of look back on them, as I'm sure you've been doing it in recent weeks, whether, whether that feels different. Oh, for sure. I mean, I really miss making images outside on that level. And also just like the fun in them. The thing about all that work, which I really love, and also the title, which feels poignant now, is maybe like this idea of positing my community and my friends and young Black men and women as being able to enjoy pleasure, right, or leisure time, and Mm. that being revolutionary. And I think positing that, uh, especially now, is really special. When I think historically about the pleasures or the freedoms we've been denied, or the way that free time and leisure time for us has been framed as something potentially violent. Um, I think about Tamir Rice, who was killed, you know, at the age of 12, when, you know, he was playing in a park in his neighborhood with a with a toy pellet gun. So just this idea and this cultural framework, but also this global framework now, I Can Make You Feel Good, which is about making images that kind of set us free. Yeah. Definitely very relevant. Yeah, I mean, there's so much kind of joy and freedom and also intimacy in those pictures. Mm. And I've read before that you've kind of described what you're depicting as a self-contained black utopia. Yeah, no, I always say that because I like leaning into the sense of play Mm. um, that the images give. But then there's this other side, right? Because I guess by making those images, which appropriate or use or subvert conventional ideas of American suburban Mm. fun, you know, I'm, I'm using fabrics like Southern Red Gingham, which is a fabric I grew up with at picnics in Georgia. By using those symbols, I almost feel that I'm also saying that this level of pleasure or freedom with the current state of things, if you, you know, place my images against the background of what's going on globally is unattainable, mm. which I think is interesting. It's like this semi-sweet idea of like, we really do want to have fun on this level. Yeah. And also this idea of like framing a photograph Um, And then having someone have to look at it through a frame and through glass, I find really interesting because then you're setting up your image as a fantasy. Yeah, like a sort of portal. Mm -hmm. You can reach it and touch it, but it's not quite attainable. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, just as you were saying, the kind of duality between this pleasure um, and play existing alongside also, you know, all of the forces that for black people limit that kind of freedom and and make that something that's, that's fraught rather than something that's easy to attain. Right. I was thinking about your video, Chasing Pink, Found Red, yeah. which has this very like beautiful uh, picnic scene of these young black people kind of lounging and, and looking amazing. Mm. But then, you know, of course, overlaid with audio of, again, young black people describing, you know, instances of racism, of microaggressions from their past. I walked into the classroom, he looked at me and said, what's going on with your hair? And I don't remember what I said back, but I'll never forget the feeling of just shame, embarrassment that didn't come with me when I walked into that room. Like before it, I said, does that is that tension something that you're interested in exploring? Oh, totally. There's this great Carrie James Marshall quote where he started making these love paintings. They were called vignettes, and they were like glitter-ridden. And if you know Carrie's work, you would mm. know that before this, he was making all these 
paintings about the Black Panthers. They were very dark in color. And I believe at the time they weren't selling. People, mm-hmm. people weren't really responding to them. They found them too overtly political. They found them too strong in their themes about blackness and identity. They weren't relevant to the like art historical canon at that time, quote unquote. Mm. Then he just started making these love paintings, paintings essentially of couples like enjoying parks and having picnics together and and being in love. And he said, he said, I figured if I could take like a cynical approach to love in a way, he was like, I was looking at Rococo paintings, which were criticized for being almost too flowery Mm. and too over the top and too kind of sensuous and not critical enough or self-serious enough or have enough critical depth. If I just make love paintings and take this cynical approach, this idea of black folks being in love or enjoying themselves, then maybe people won't criticize me for some of the political or social things I was interested in talking about and that my peers are interested in talking about at the time. Mm. I found that really cool to adapt to today because in this age we're living in with social media images kind of come and go on a timeline, right? And so I was interested in coming up with strategies to make my images known or be seen, but also still have a political or social commentary. So I guess Chasing Pink brings both those sides together where you have this audio underlaid that is very much about the inner psyche of a lot of young black folks that growing up, we were constantly reminded of ways in which we were not placed at the center. Mm. Whether that was our hair, our identity, our lips, um, just around our friends or in school. So the stories I got were amazing. I got over two hours of audio from people who sent me voice memos with their iPhone just off of Instagram. I did an open call. And then Mm. I trimmed all that audio down, kind of juxtaposed it with these images I shot of my friends enjoying this very lush, kind of classical idea of a picnic. And yeah, yeah, there you have it. It was just fun to make, too. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your... Your upbringing it was a it was a suburb of atlanta georgia is that right where you grew up yeah 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 what was life like at that stage yes yeah, a good question because i guess suburbia and georgia and this idea of being middle class they were just normal to me like they were it was just part of daily life so it was interesting to kind of bring that into my work this idea that the black experience is also potentially coming from a middle-class upbringing, potentially Mm. enjoying um, kind of suburban leisures and not having to worry about material things so much. When I was 13 and I was a skater, I saved up all my money and probably borrowed some of my mom's money to buy a DSLR camera. Mm. Cameras weren't that accessible to black filmmakers and black photographers just by means of both historical, structural, infrastructural situations we were in and also the access and like financial feasibility of buying a camera at the times that our parents lived in, our grandparents, our great grandparents lived in. So I had this access to buy this camera. I had this access to be a skateboarder and I had this access to basically teach myself a skill um, and try and pursue that and tell stories with that. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. I guess that's my origin story, you could say. Does that feel strange to you to have an origin story? No, I love an origin story. That's how I understand how people frame up how they think about stuff. Because, mm. you you know, you have one, too. And like that's, and that'll yeah. frame up how you think about art. And Yeah. Well, I mean, thinking about your own origin story, I feel like social media and like the, the particular time in which you were born and which you kind of came of age as a teenager is so much part of it. You know, the fact that you gained a following really on Tumblr and on Instagram and that that not being the way that um, an artist even 10 years older would have come up. I mean, did, did you have a sense at the time of kind of building this online audience and kind of speaking to a community of people who are not necessarily geographically in the same place as you? Yeah, we do grow up with more of this like hyper awareness of what our work is doing, which is cool, I think. Like you put a picture out there, you put a work out there and you immediately get this feedback and it might come from Europe. You know, it might come from Chile, you know, it might come from Brazil. It might come like you don't know how your work is going to affect different parts of the world. I mean, that's how I formed some of my earliest friendships with people like um, Kevin Abstract. Mm-hmm, the rapper, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and Brockhampton, who are a really special group. And those guys I just found off of Twitter. You know, he lived in Texas. I, you know, at the time was at NYU in film school in New York. And, you know, I just kind of reached out to him. I said, I think your music's genius. Hmm. You know, would you want to kickstart some money? and make a music video together. So that was just through the internet. That wasn't off of anything else. So I think it's really shaped how I do stuff. And it's made me really feel like there's not much that I couldn't do if I just reach out 
and yeah. try, you know? I think a lot of people didn't feel before. They probably felt maybe boxed in by their resources or what they had immediately next to them. Mm. And were you influenced by, like, other photographers you were seeing on platforms like Instagram? Oh, for sure. Mm. Um, I grew up with trying to look at Tumblr and Pinterest for hours every day. <laughs> and I remember my roommate, like, sophomore year of school was like, you know that you fall asleep with that phone in your hand and you wake up with that phone in your hand? <laughs> so I used to, I read somewhere that Kanye West looks at a thousand images a day. I don't even know if that's true or not. Um, <laughs> but learning and looking at more is going to help you. And if you ask any of my friends, I'm, I'm like weirdly kind of a heady person. I, I was even like talking to Ryan McGinley, who's a huge inspiration. The photographer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and, and we were just having dinner and... You know, I was like, wait, so you take pictures every single day? He's like, yeah, I'm always taking pictures of like something, someone. But for mm. me, I, I don't I don't actually operate like that at all. Like I'm very conceptual. I don't know if I like to call it that, but I have to like sit and incubate and like decide on an idea and feel good about it. And then I go take a picture. Yeah. So like a normal day for you, you might not take a single picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'll go months without picking up my camera sometime. And I have no problem with that because Mm. I also went to film school. And so maybe I approach photo shoots a bit like film shoots. They're like big occurrences for me. I'm one of those people who just likes to know everything that's going on around. And yeah, I was super inspired by people like Ryan McGinley, um, Larry Clark, even Petra Collins, who Mm. was like the first internet phenomenon photographer, I think, on some level. Like, I think this idea of like, young sensuous people in photographs you know being free i just was drawn to that freedom i was like i want to make that they look cool and they're being free and that level of freedom is what i want on some level because maybe psychically i was denied it you know i was told by my mother oh if you wear that hoodie out the house be careful how you're perceived yeah i mean one of the interesting things about um you know places like pinterest and instagram is also that Um, you just get this range of images from across time as well as across space. So you can look at like an old painting next to a photograph that's been taken in your city on that day. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's kind of interesting as well as a kind of influence because it's very ahistorical and it's just like kind of quite cut and paste in in that kind of aesthetic. Yeah, literally. I think it's so cool. Yeah. I think it's so cool. I read that you... um, that when you were applying to NYU to study film, that you um, submitted a short like, horror film, which was filmed <laughs> in your in your parents' house. And I was thinking, like, that's an interesting influence as well. I mean, was was horror like a genre that you were into at the time? I don't know why I wanted to make that horror film. I guess I thought I thought that's why that's what like a serious filmmaker is supposed to do. I also was just like cooped up with a friend in the house, and we were just looking at movies, and we were like, that's really cool, you know. I think part of creating stuff is being a child and being kind of a sponge and being like, no, I don't know what that means. But on some subconscious level, that hits me. You know, Mm. we were watching movies in the house and we were watching how the drawers were moving and all this paranormal activity was going on in the house. And we were like, what if we tried to recreate that? And so sometimes creativity is also just like seeing things. It hits you on a gut level and you're like, I want to try that. And Mm. so the horror movie was like me trying to be like a filmmaker, not just a skate filmer kind of person. And so sometimes it's like, I also do want to be kind of tried to be taken seriously because, you know, that's that's an uphill battle too. And did you find that at NYU? You know, because it's very prestigious where you studied film and who you studied with. Did you have a sense of like, I want to do this seriously. I want to be taken seriously as a filmmaker, as as an image maker. Oh, for sure. I got there. I was probably too serious. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought I was going to be like the worst in the whole school in a way. I thought I was going to get there and have no idea what I was doing. And all these kids were going to probably have like, you know, Steven Spielberg as their dad. or Why did you think that? Because it was NYU. I don't know. Because it was mm. just the top schools, like the best schools. It's like they're going to all have their own cameras and they're going to have all this great equipment. They're going to have made these serious, deep, artistic short films. And I haven't made a serious film. I'm just a skateboard filmmaker. So I had imposter syndrome, I think. Mm. Got there and turns out I wasn't too bad. You know? I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, well, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so... It wasn't long after NYU that you really hit the big time. You were 23 when you, you know, most famously shot Beyonce's portrait for the cover of the September issue of American Vogue back in 2018. You were, I think, the youngest. You were the first black photographer to shoot the cover. One of the youngest. I think David Bailey was maybe a year younger. But I mean 23. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still, it's, 
it's young and that was a I guess a kind of career defining moment for you um, oh for sure I just want to ask how did you feel before you before you kind of walked into the room before you walked into that shoot strangely calm when when Vogue called me I remember feeling strangely ready for something like that hmm. um, just the way my career in photography was going you're right it happened really soon after NYU and I was definitely really young but I also was really concerned with a lot of things at once and so it felt like the right moment to do a commission like that that synthesized so much that synthesized history synthesized politics synthesized culture fashion art and and music of course like I'd shot some pieces for the fader again with my friend Kevin Abstract who at the time mm -hmm. was growing in his own right as like a really talented multi-dimensional artist. And then I moved on to do things like shooting Spike Lee for Office Magazine. I photographed Emma Gonzalez and the survivors of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Parkland shooting in Florida. Mm. So politics and then my own autobiographical or personal work, which was kind of concerned with these ideas of young black men, um, black masculinity and, and freedom for us. All of those things I was doing before. So when I got the call about the commission, I really, in a way, felt like, oh, yeah, I am the person to do this. It's interesting that your photography straddles so many different things that sometimes we think of as having these kind of walls around them, like fashion photography, street photography, fine art photography. Yeah. And, and like you said earlier, you kind of don't see the differences there. You kind of, everything is connected. Yeah. It's not about those separate silos. No. Is that, is that because you're interested in, like, the audience and who the audience is for your work. Definitely. There's a curator I just worked with, Isolde, um, Brielle Meyer. She always said, you know, you're very, um, and I never thought of it this way, I, I feel that you're a very um, audience-aware uh, artist. That's what she said, you're an mm -hmm. audience-aware artist. And I was always like, what does she mean by that? Am I like some like overly self-aware kind of But actually, I think it just means that I'm interested in engaging people and I'm interested in crossing cultural boundaries and I'm more focused about how my work is hitting people on a gut level that maybe uses genre but rides above it. I wonder also if, if you're an audience aware artist to use, that, to use that term because you've been aware of having an audience from quite a young point in your kind of artistic evolution. Like sure. when, you're, when you're a photographer who's working online on social media, that is your audience, mm -hmm. you know, you're not just working away in an attic room by yourself mm -hmm. um, for no one to ever see your work, yeah. you know, as per the olden days. Yeah, that's a good point, because I think everyone has a two-fold relationship with social media, and like, that's its own conversation, but I guess just being a young person now, everyone's kind of aware of that. Everyone, to some degree, has an audience. Everyone has an Instagram TV show, or everyone has a, you know, radio show, and it's so nice that I, I feel like, for me, yeah, I've been blessed with this, like, amazing audience from an early age, but anyone has an audience to some degree. And I really, mm. really feel that niche is the new mass in that way. Because if you're speaking to the thousand people that really care about exactly what you're doing and everything you're doing, then I, I feel that's more important than speaking to 10,000 people that kind of half care. It's funny you, you, hearing you talk about um, the kind of niche and the mass audience. I mean, do you think it would be right to say that you went from having a niche audience and now your audience is much more a mass audience? You know, you, you don't um, photograph Beyonce and still belong in a niche after that. I know, yeah. How have you felt about that transition? Like now, anything you put out there is consumed by thousands, maybe millions of people. I know. That's, that's the thing I think I still grapple with. My friend the other day was like, Tyler, you don't really see yourself as you are sometimes. And that's a really, really great thing. Like, that's a, <laughs> it's a really great thing. It also can be a damaging thing because, you know, there's times where I'll put stuff out on the Internet because I still feel like I'm speaking to my niche audience, that I feel like I'm still speaking to that core that I had maybe before a commission like the mm. Beyonce shoot. And so I might put something out there and I'm still interested in wanting to be as free as I want to be on the internet, but obviously, you know, a part of being mass is having constrictions around what you do and what you say and things like that. Mm. I'm really interested in the way that you talk about working with the subjects of your photography, because it sounds like it's a very um, kind of empathetic collaborative process but in a way the way that we talk about photography the kind of language that we use to describe it is very violent you know we talk about capturing about taking a picture about shooting and there's a real there's an interesting tension there isn't there 
Yeah, I've always had attention with this, and I've never actually talked about this in an interview. Which I love, I love this question because I even find myself hesitating when I talk about my work, and then I use the word subject, because then there's like this relationship, right? Of like you're the subject, you know, object to subject relationships, um, or like people to object relationships, or photographer to subject relationship, which feel more dominant or hierarchical, which I'm not at all interested in. Well, I think particularly when you talk about a subject and uh, blackness and race as a consideration, that right. also just takes on a whole other meaning in a country where slavery was quite recent, you know. Right, quite recent. And this idea of us as objects um, and as subjects, mm. right? We were subjugated to, you know, slavery, um, you know, still subjugated to you know, criminalization and mm. incarceration. You know, we were also considered objects, right? We were also considered le legally three-fifths of a person. We would vote, and that would hmm. be three-fifths of a vote, right? So I have a weird relationship to those words. I, um, you know, I love Annie Leibovitz's work, but I, I saw somewhere in an interview that somebody asked her, when you're doing your portrait sessions, what do you do to make your subjects feel comfortable? She said, why would I want to make my subjects feel comfortable? Hmm. That, was, that was her answer to the question. I found that deeply disturbing. And, you know, I love her work and all, all that good stuff, but I, I have a natural gut drawback from that kind of thought. So it sounds like something that you're thinking about quite a lot is the kind of power dynamics of, of making a portrait. For sure. You know, it's interesting. The artist, in a way, always has more power or a different kind of power than the subject has because you're the one who's in control of the depiction. You're right. making creative decisions that when you're the sitter, you just don't have access to those decisions. Right, totally. And that'll mm. always be the case in making a picture. Um, I think it's just having an awareness of that and being aware of what those depictions bring historically or socially or culturally. Mm. You know, I'm not interested in making images where black men and women or black folks in general look gargantuan or monstrous. I'm mm. not interested in that. And so it's just about a personal focus, you know? Yeah. Is there one thing that you haven't done yet that you really want to do? Uh, I mean, I really, really would love to make a film, a uh, feature-length movie. Yeah, I mean, I moved up to New York with that whole idea, thinking I would come out a Hollywood director, whatever that means. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'd, like to play, I'd like to play in that field and see what happens. Let's see. Well, I look forward to the Tyler Mitchell first feature film. <laughs> Tyler, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been great. Thank you. I really, really appreciated this. I'm so excited for it to come out. So that was then, in May, and this is now. <laughs> and now is very different. So we wanted to call Tyler back and hear his thoughts on everything that's happened since. Yes. Here's the conversation that I had with him today. Tyler, hey. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm I'm well, thanks. Um a lot has happened since since we spoke. <laughs> yeah. I guess the first thing I want to ask you is just how are you? Um I'm doing a lot better than I was probably last week or, you know, days past. Um mm -hmm. yeah, it feels like the world has flipped upside down once again. Uh in hopefully a really good way. Um but I'm doing a lot better these past few days. Last week I was really um pretty dejected, uh, mm. sad and lost feeling, yeah. And so now you're feeling a bit more hopeful about things? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the protests that I've been taking part in have felt really purposeful. Um, seeing that it has spread to such a worldwide effect, I am feeling more hopeful. I'm feeling a bit like we're kind of in like a beautiful moment of complete chaos. It's been exciting for me, at least, because just talking to my dad, he's like, I've seen quite a few of these in my lifetime, you know? Yeah. Someone, you know, dies or gets killed. There's lots of uprising for a while. And then it kind of returns back to some form of like pseudo normal, you know? Um, but this doesn't feel that way. This feels different. This feels a lot bigger. And to see so many like global leaders like Angela Davis and other people say the same is a really good feeling. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention your dad because, I mean, in a sense, I'm wondering whether it ever feels for you or maybe for him like watching kind of us white folks suddenly waking up to the existence of racism 
<laughs> and this is something that you've been saying for for, for so many years. Um, right. Yeah. And it, this movement, there, there seems like there's been quite a lot of focus on what whiteness is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the importance of recognizing that. Yeah. And the responsibilities of that as as well as blackness. But I, I mean, I, I don't know. Is that is that how it feels at all? Or Yeah, oh, totally. For me, uh, the like exciting part about this change and the focus on specifically whiteness uh, and the system, I started to kind of put a timeline together when reflecting on this moment. I was like, yeah, in 2016, before, before President Trump was elected, something about the Obama administration maybe allowed for a certain amount of safe feelings around America, right? There was this kind of um, post-racial Obama world we were living in where we had a black president and a lot of people felt safe, but certain systems were still perpetuating and excluding black voices, black creativity, um, the work that we were all trying to make that was important to us. Uh, that wasn't you know, quite being valued or uplifted um, as much as, as it is now. And um, two amazing works came in September of 2016 that for me changed things, which was Moonlight um, mm -hmm. and, and Solange is a Seat at the Table. And those came out within three weeks of one another. Uh, and I remember experiencing those two pretty much in tandem, going to the theater and watching Moonlight and listening to Solange's album on a pretty much daily basis from September to October. Um, and the month after, in November, President Trump was elected and things suddenly felt way less safe, right? There, yeah. there, there felt this urgent call to amplify all the important voices around us, um, to call on all the creators. And there became this conversation that came to the fore of who deserves a seat at the table, what voices are important in American art, in global art, um, American photography, global photography, what voice, what representation means, right? Like all these questions of representation in the mainstream, um, how Moonlight can win the Best Picture Award at the Academy Awards um, and be a story that centers black and queer bodies. So this is such an important conversation and it feels like four years later, there's become a revolution in this conversation that's no longer incumbent on the creators, right? It's no longer a focus on uh, the people who make the work that's about our existence and our experiences, because this is our life's work, right? It's, it's like, this is what we've been talking about. This is what we've been focused on and considering and making uh, and putting lots of hours into so many black artists. Life's work is to validate, you know, and I even wrote it in a caption on Instagram. It's like, we do this work and we fantasize these images up and we fantasize these stories up to literally prove the validity of our existence, right? Like, and our experiences. Not, not, to, not for anyone other than ourselves, because we need that to hold on and to keep going, you know? So now the focus has really shifted to what is the system going to do? What are the mm -hmm. powers that be going to do to actually change? And the pressure is on now, because if you don't, there is uh, there's the threat of losing money, right? There's the threat of yeah. econ economic destruction, and there's the threat of physical destruction, which we're seeing in the streets. And um, I'm I'm here for it, honestly. Well, it's also interesting that, um, I mean, it's taken so long for this realisation to happen that actually you can't expect the victims of a problem to be the ones to fix the problem. Mm. Like, as well as brutal, that's also illogical. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's impossible. Yeah. So it feels like it's come late, but, but as you say, it is coming now. Yeah, I think um, so, in a big way. It's interesting that you mentioned Moonlight because... That was so important in a way in terms of how we think about black masculinity. And it strikes me that lots of your work is also about the huge multiplicity of yeah. black masculinity and like all the infinite ways there are to be a black man. Mm. And I wonder whether you feel now in this time of, of like real reevaluation mm. um, that that's something you've been thinking about and whether you feel that things might really change? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I certainly hope so. I always have to start with the hope that things will change. Um, and I don't think that, and again, I think the biggest thing about this moment is that it really isn't about our behavior specifically. You know, my, my work kind of um, opens up ideas of representation and what a black man has been visualized as on the screen and in images uh, in contrast to what history might have served us, right? Again, there's still that focus on what the system needs to do in terms of changing how they visualize us. Um, you know, and that's why 
images like the ones we've seen in the, in the video of George Floyd are such a strong call to action, right? But when I think about Barry, when I think about Moonlight, I just get, I just start to smile thinking about like my first experience in that theater, watching it because it felt like a brain explosion of everything I had been maybe considering, half thinking about doing, um, wanting to make in images and in photography brought to life on the screen. That was a huge part of the conversation that called me to action to make my work for sure. Is there anything else that you want to say however many weeks after our first conversation it is? I've been reflecting a lot on what our um, world of media and fashion and art is going to do about this. Um, how things are going to truly change, right? Not just kind of face value or kind of symbolic or representational changes. Um, and that has led me to really think about my process in picture making, which is, which is about representation and is about offering different or new kind of modes of considering how we've been imaged in the past and kind of contrasting those histories um, and presenting new histories and, and continuing a lineage of other black image makers, right? That's kind of where I sit at the intersection, but I've been reflecting a lot about kind of being open to throwing all of that out the window and, and, and kind of approaching making images in new ways now. Um, there's been such an urge on, and I'm sure there's people around the world who are watching these protests and a lot of looting and destruction of colonial statues and destruction of old Southern or white power structure symbols. And uh, they're kind of watching all this and they're just waiting for it to be over, right? So that they can return to normal life. They're waiting for it all to be over. When is this all gonna simmer down so I can kind of, I don't know, go get a haircut or go, you know, anything that I want to do. And I, I think about all the people um, around our country and around the world who are kind of sitting, especially in the pandemic, which has, you know, preceded this moment by about three months, mm. just really eager and waiting to return back to a sense of normal. And my biggest thing that I've been considering thinking about is just that there truly will be no return to normal. There wasn't a normal in the first place, you know, and that is what this moment is really about. And there wasn't a normal in the first place. So many people weren't feeling normal. And I've been reflecting on, especially the really atypical experience I've had with the system, as it were, right? The system mm. of magazines, the system of being commissioned as a photographer, the system of being able to live comfortably off of making work. I sit at a really interesting intersection where I find it important to kind of be the beacon and carry the torch into sadly unexplored waters but I also am reflective and aware of the fact that I've been given a mainstream space to essentially do whatever I want. Like, right? Like, I haven't really been questioned in terms of, oh, that model choice is too black, which a lot of people have, mm. right? Or that, or, why, or, you know, why do you only kind of photograph black folks? You know, that question that Toni Morrison had to mm. face, which was like, are you ever going to write stories about white people? Why, um you know, you've always centered stories about black folks. And her answer to that was you couldn't possibly understand how racist that question is because you can't imagine seeing black folks at the center. Um, and so I've been really, really thinking about that a lot. Um, and that revolution for me happened in 2016 with works like Moonlight and Seat at the Table. Uh, and I think it's going, it's happening again in a whole different way. Um, I'm excited to see just how like my approach to image making changes. Um, Do you think it will change? I think so. I'm ready. Like, I'm also young enough in, at my point where I'm like, I'm ready to literally throw out everything that I've known to just change my process and change how I hopefully approach images. I'm considering everything. Um, and I'm also being okay with not having arrived at any kind of answers or kind of genius epiphanies yet. Like, one thing I've been really talking about is just how kind of interested or excited in seeing how, just how far I can kind of push it. Um, and by that, I mean, like, I've been talking a lot with a friend, um, Jeremy O'Harris, about this idea of, um, this idea of black nonsense. And he just went on this amazing um, Twitter tirade where he posted a play he wrote about uh, some of the frustrating experiences he had at Yale School of Drama. Yeah, and, I saw that. He, um, he was our guest, in fact, um, yeah. two guests to go on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've, been, we've been talking a little bit about this thing we might do, and we've been talking a lot about nonsense and the inability to be understood could actually be really vital right now in terms of that being our outlet for expressing a lot of the piled-up uh, frustration we feel um, 
response to the destruction and brutalization of our bodies that we're feeling right now and always. Uh, I love his approach to that he has this like whole section in the play where he's really going in on this idea of like jazz, music, being intentionally unintelligible or being intentionally kind of incomprehensible and that being the highest kind of elegate form of 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 black art, right? So I'm interested in like, what could an image be or how could I take the platform of a commission and and really break open the ideas of what it's been before and what it could be now? So the idea of nonsense as something kind of creative. Freeing, right? Yeah, because yeah. the last... The last time we spoke, we, we touched a lot on these ideas of freedom, right? And what that looks like and how I'm kind of reusing these symbols from my past, from my suburban upbringing, um, reshuffling those and also um, questioning the history of how we've been imaged, right? With pieces like mm. Idyllic Space, like with pieces like Chasing Pink Found Red. Um, but what does it mean to throw out all those symbols that have been sold to us a little bit all together, Right and completely make nonsense and how can that because I do think it is important for an artist to exemplify freedom so can nonsense be a form of freedom we were talking about Dadaism and how even Duchamp I'm like looking at his autobiography right behind me those folks were so interested in making a whole lot of nonsense (laughs) like I love that energy let's see where it goes well Tyler thank you so much for speaking to me again thank you so much for having me Really glad to be able to come back and reflect. Well, thank you for that, Grizz. What a what a conversation to end our season on. Hmm. Um, there seemed to be a narrative flowing between the two conversations you had with him that... Um, I felt we were very privileged to hear, which was sort of like, what is the role of my work and what am I going to do next? And how is what I'm going to do next changing? Yeah. I was wondering how, how if you felt that. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely makes me think about like, what is the art and culture that's going to come out of this moment? You know, to hear someone talking about it like right now when we're sort of so much in it. Mm-hmm. But I like, I imagine lots of artists, including lots of black artists, are thinking like, do I just carry on doing what I was going to do in mm. 2020 or do I stop and throw out the rule book? Mm. This is a this is an unprecedented time. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, especially because his work is so deliberate, like hearing him talk about the relationship or the power dynamic and the ways that he's thinking about the power dynamic between a photographer and his subject and like thinking about the words that we use for photography mm. and and not wanting black people to to be considered objects or, or subjects, subverting that relationship. And every decision is is considered in the work he puts out. And so what happens when the oppressive class <laughs> starts to see their ways in which they hold their oppression. Like what happens when we all, the rest of us realize that our structures are riddled with white supremacy and oppression. Like then what happens to your work as a black artist? Mm. Um, how rare do we get to hear somebody grappling with that? It's it, We don't usually get to hear that. Yeah. Grizz, I'm curious We've talked a lot about what's happening in the U.S., but um, being in Britain with sort of foundational white institutions, <laughs> um, the the sort of like ground zero of colonialism, <laughs> um, how are you reflecting on the conversation you just had? I think one of the things that Tyler has really made me think about is, you know, he was saying one of the differences now is it feels like the onus is on these white people and white institutions and... Mm-hmm. You know, I think something that's like a very, maybe the most uncomfortable fact about racism for white people is that we benefit from racism and nobody wants to, really nobody wants to say that. But in any kind of power dynamic, if one person has less of the power, that means the other person has more of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we talk about kind of redistributing wealth or redistributing, or redistributing anything, um, that means giving something up as the people who have more of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's 
that's really what this conversation is kind of getting to. And I think for a lot of people, that's quite a difficult point in the conversation um, yeah. where it's where it's saying actually racism is not a black problem. This is actually our problem. And yes, and we need to change what we're doing. Um, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned the UK. I think something that um, is like a knee jerk reaction here often is like, oh, well, America's very racist. You know, our police don't shoot people. Um, racism is an American problem. It's not. Um, And I think that, you know, the fact that we've seen lots of colonial um, statues and statues of slave traders coming down in the UK has really pushed that to the fore. So that's a conversation that certainly we're having here in the UK. Yeah, I I mean, the thing about that sort of insidious thought is that um, it's sort of unconscious, like that white people are threatened. by the potential loss of power. And when Tyler said, like, I'm not interested in making Black people look monstrous, Mm. I thought, like, this society has made Black people look monstrous. (laughs) Like, white people have made Black people look monstrous. Even in the interview when he was saying that, like, so much of Black art has to be in reaction to, to this unforgivable experience that white people have put them through yeah, that is so true. It's like, it's not merely expressing, it's also reclaiming some bit of that humanity which is taken. Yes. And it's a reckoning. <laughs> and it's long overdue. And um, and it feels uncomfortable in lots of ways, like, um, because... And it should. Because we're part of it. Yeah, and it should. Yeah. Yeah. And like, good. <laughs> like, we should all feel fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> And when I say we all, of course, Grizz, I mean like you and me and um, other white people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been talking about this also off the podcast, but we should all not know what we should be writing on Instagram and then be sucking it up and writing something anyway. And we should all be dedicating Mm. ourselves to something that, again, is long overdue. Yeah, it's it's a white problem. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Tyler didn't have to come back and talk to us for a second time. It's not Tyler's job to explain... Black Lives Matter to me. Um, (laughs) And yet he did speak to me again. And I'm so grateful to him for doing that and and for doing it so generously and kind of opening a window onto his thoughts as an artist at this time. Yeah. We're almost at the end of the episode. And as you'll know, if you listen to the last few episodes, we've been asking you guys for your recommendations of what to watch on Netflix and other streaming platforms. Um, and we've had some really brilliant responses, loads of stuff that we haven't seen before. We've published that list on FT.com and it's free to read. And we've put the link in our show notes. And we've also angled some of the recommendations around the Black Lives Matter movement. Also, before we go, uh, we just want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for an extremely rewarding and very expanding season of Culture Call. Um, We have loved getting to know you and being able to explore culture through one of the most historic moments of our lifetime. Um, It has really helped us through and it's really been a massive privilege. Yeah, this season has been great to work on. I mean, I didn't think I would enjoy it as much, you know, being in a home studio surrounded by duvets and... (laughs) The yelling at your husband. (laughs) Yeah. Me getting trapped in a closet. (laughs) The closet was a high point, yeah. (laughs) For you. Low point for me. I'm just really going to miss you while you're on maternity leave. And um, I am so in awe of you for going through all of this while also being extremely pregnant. (laughs) Your baby is so lucky to have you as a mom. Lila, you are actually going to make me cry. You promised you wouldn't. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. And my American earnestness is coming out. No, I love your American earnestness. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to have a baby. It's going to happen. Um. Lila, what what are you going to be doing when we're not doing this? I am going to take some time off, Grizz, in solidarity with your childbirth. (laughs) That's the first thing I'm going to do. Um, I am going to be writing and doing my other jobs at the FT, and I will still be on the internet sharing what I'm watching and reading and what listeners are watching and reading and all that. Um, All that said, 
We will be back with a new season in a few months. Uh, we will have a host of new guests. We will have a revolving chair of temporary co-hosts from around the FT and beyond. Um, so please stay subscribed and um, we can't wait to see you soon. Yeah, and I'm going to be a listener. I can't wait. <laughs> Grizz, do you want to start the credits for one last time? Okay, <laughs> here goes. Yes. Listeners, let's stay in touch. You can find the podcast on Twitter at FT Culture Call or email us at culturecall at FT.com. We always love hearing from you. We are also on Instagram at Lila Rapp and at Griselda Murray Brown. If you've enjoyed the show, share the podcast with your friends and make sure they're subscribed ahead of our next season. You can also, as always, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to support the show. We've been, as ever, Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood, with special thanks to our colleagues Breen Turner, Oluwakemi Aladisui, Cheryl Brumley, Mark Filipino, Renee Kaplan, and Amy Keane. And the music this season has been composed by Fatum and Tristan Cassell Delavoir. Is that it? Ugh. <laughs>